Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another Britflix Frankfest preview podcast. I've got with me Jen Handorf, producer of Borderlands. Hello, Jen. Hello. I think we'll start with the easy bit. Do you want to tell us a little <laughs> bit about your film so that the, the listener can uh, know what to look forward to? Some context there. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the Borderlands is a horror film. Uh, the Borderlands is a film about three men sent by the Vatican to go investigate a supposed miracle in a rural Devon church. And so we've got um, elements of the Catholic church, elements of sort of Wicker Man and the creepy locals. And then um, the real question becomes, is it a miracle? Is it faked? Or is it something much darker? So it's, it's a, it's a fun one. It's a fun one. So what, what, what inspired that? Films, you know. So there was um, it's it's funny. There was a there was a, a book by the same name called The Borderlands, which is a completely different story, but it deals with the <clears throat> the notion of this world and the other world, and the you know crossing over between the earthly and the and the sort of heavenly or or hellish. Um, yeah. And that was the starting point for it. Um, the, the film is uh, one of the first from a new um, slate from Metrodome, who are, who are a distributor who's now producing films. And they came out of it with the idea that they wanted to do a film in that realm. And they had a couple of stipulations, like the film footage and some other things. Mm. And that was the brief. And we were able to, to come up with a story from the brief, basically. So okay. it was sort of... It's it's different, I would say, from other films of this size because rather than being something where we tried to come up with an idea to fit a budget and then go find a distributor, we started off with a distributor and a brief and came up with an idea, workshopping it into what we wanted to be doing. So it was it was fun to develop it that way. So the script came after the kind of incentive to make the film, was it? It did, it oh, did. Okay. But okay. it was um it was really interesting. They've been they've been absolutely great and supportive. The entire time, yeah. Um, but it's um, it's been a really fun way to work because you you know you know you're going to be able to make it, which which a lot yeah, of yeah, times yeah, that's a, <laughs> an advantage on most films. Exactly, you you because a lot of times you spend years and years developing a script and a story, and you get mm. so bogged down in the 
in the what ifs that it was really refreshing to go into a project that we knew we were going to make mm. and we just needed to to give ourselves the best story possible at that point and found footage is a is a bit of a kind of marmite thing with with horror fans there's there's the lovers and there's the haters of it i suppose and there doesn't need to be there's been much room in the middle for it. <laughs> it yeah. is, it is, and it's sort of... So what, what, is it, what is it you're doing with found footage, do you think? So, it's, it's funny because the found footage, as I said, was sort of part of the brief, almost. Okay. But, yeah. um, but I'm, I'm from the school that believes Cannibal Holocaust was sort of the, the, the last amazing found footage film, in a way. I'll but, buy that. I'll <laughs> buy that. Um, but, um, you know, and, and obviously, you know, Blair Witch and everything, they've done interesting things, and, and it's... It's been, you know, paranormal activity and all that kind of thing. But I think, I do think it's slightly oversaturated the market. And we didn't want to treat our audience with what I think is a sort of laziness that some found footage uh, films treat their audience with. So we actually, I I think that after about the first 10 minutes, you sort of forget this is a found footage film. Mm. That really it becomes more intimate than that and we don't have any of the sort of you know fourth wall addressing you know sitting down and addressing your audience in a youtube video fashion or any of this kind of thing um we are just watching the story unfold from the from the characters perspectives okay which um to be honest you know as a as a as a low budget film it had a lot of advantages because it means you don't have to light as much you don't have to um put put as much money into some of the things that you would do kit and equipment wise um, from the camera lighting perspective. But then I found that actually from a storytelling perspective, it kind of afforded as many opportunities as it afforded difficulties. (laughs) We we hear all the time the idea that it's cost effective, but you know, what, what are the challenges to making a found footage film? So it was really interesting. The, the biggest thing, because the way, the way the story is told is that these three investigators are each required to wear, um, a small head cam. Okay. Um, which we, we went through dozens of models before we found one that we felt wasn't intrusive when you're looking at the characters. So it's, it's you know, we, we hopefully that's part of the reason it works because you yeah, forget yeah. that they're wearing these cameras. Um, so that was one of them from a design standpoint, just how do we show these cameras or, or introduce these cameras practically but without imposing too much on the story. Um, so that was one element of it. But then even even through that process and to the edit, we found that in the edit, because when you've got two characters, oh sorry, rather three characters talking at once, so they're sort of stood in a triangle looking at each other talking, that's a very difficult scene to cut when you're cutting from their POVs because in in editing rules, you you want to change your angle by over 30 degrees when you cut to a new angle. It's sort of, it's a sort of crossing the line rule, but not quite. So, so it's not drawing. You want to change one more, but if you've got three people in a triangle, by definition, you're over 30 degrees. Exactly. You're sort of, it's not working out very easily, but we had, um, we had some interesting, I think we found solutions pretty much everywhere. But initially we had to, we had to sort of, recreate the language we were cutting in because yeah. we, we couldn't just cut from this character to this character because yeah. it was jarring. Um, so that was a difficulty. I, I would imagine our, our DOP, Evan Bolter, um, he had a very interesting experience for it because he had to sort of, he, he typically has a very polished um, photographic look. Um, and he sort of had to unlearn all of that because he had to get comfortable with 
focus not being perfect. And he mm. had to get comfortable with, you know, lighting being overexposed and underexposed in places. Because when you, when you have a camera that is sat on someone's shoulder and you're having to just follow the actor around and your camera movement is being motivated by their movement, yeah. you can't control the world in 360. No, so um, yeah, it was it was really interesting. There was a there was a lot of a lot of cons, I would say, yeah. <laughs> but um, but I think we we found interesting solutions to deal with them. And then and and to be honest, talking about the the financial sort of producer hat side of it, it is cheaper, but I think you have to work a lot harder to get a good found footage film out there now because mm. the audiences are used to this inundation of sort of. B, C, or D grade found footage movies that if you're going to make one and you don't have Paramount behind you as Paranormal Activity did or or whoever else, you've you've got to give them something interesting and I hope that's what we've done. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you've you've certainly given that a lot of thought. Like, I've seen The Conspiracy, which is on at um, Breakfast this year, and without, I won't spot it for anybody, but they use a very good technique to get you in the point of view of the person and having a camera and then you not realising you're watching the camera anymore. It kind of works as the person looking at the other person and the other person looking back all the time. And it's interesting too, because VHS2 does a lot of that. Well, VHS and VHS2 both. Mm. I I think those two films are really interesting in a found footage perspective because they, the way they motivate the camera is Mm. different in every one of those episodes. Yes, And sometimes you're aware, like sometimes you're very aware of the fact you're watching a camera perspective and sometimes you do lose that that sort of restriction and you do sort of just begin to feel like you're watching a movie as normal but it's it's interesting it's sort of it's i think i think the genre that that particular branch of the genre is probably at an end of its cycle and it'll come back later in the future but it's been interesting watching them develop and it was fun making one so you say you've seen VHS two. I have, I have. I thought the GoPro one on the helmet of the of the, of the bike helmet was one where I thought they did it really well. I thought they used it well, especially I how they kept up with it. Loved that one, and and that one, I don't know if I don't want to give too much away for anybody. I'll say what I say, and you can cut me if you need to. <laughs> um, that um, that I thought that that short in particular gave a really fresh perspective to both found footage and zombie films. No, that's exactly that's what I do. It kind of did, um, it so did a good job on two fronts of it. Exactly. It gave it gave it gave it some oomph. <laughs> so now you've this is your is this your second feature film? This is I produced a film called Isle of Dogs. I oh, produced I I'm a co-producer on Little Deaths that mm. Sean Hogan put out. Um Devil's Business was my first singular producer credit distributed feature and then i made another one in between devil's business and this called the forgotten which um we've actually also just finished but that one was on a much more shoestring budget which is why it took us so long to get finished but um so technically uh this is my fourth feature um as a producer so So as a producer just for the analysis brickflix now i know know brickflix audience the accent doesn't sound like <laughs> I, I can assure you. I'm drinking tea right now. <laughs> Jen is a resident. <laughs> don't, don't, don't get the immigration on me now. <laughs> um, what, was, what was it got you, what, what bit you as the film book, and what, what was it made you think to be a producer? Well, so or did you even start with that notion? Did you, was that out of design, out of necessity? It's, it's really quite funny because it's... Um, I've always, always, always been into films. I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee, and I've always, always been into films. But 
um, I never really even considered the possibility of being a filmmaker. It, it just seemed so so utopian to me that someone <laughs> someone like me could actually be involved in the production of a film in any way. So I was I was an avid film watcher, um, and you know I I my the the VHS. Uh, store Black Lodge Video in my hometown that had you know the the unrated cuts of of nasties and all this other kind of stuff. Watching those from the time I was sixteen, and as soon as I could get my hands on them, I wouldn't get chucked out by the police or something. It was always watching those films. Um, and I I initially thought I would be a, a journalist actually, and um, I went to Columbia University in New York uh, expecting to get a journalism degree, and I found that all of the um, all of the courses in the English major I wanted to take were film courses, and then I realized, well, they have a film degree here, and I could do the film degree. And it was a long conversation with some very disappointed parents <laughs> um, when I told them that I was going to go to an Ivy League school and become a film major because I want to make movies. Um, and so I, I started the major, and even then, I still had a focus on criticism and, and journalism within film, but. Um, a couple of mates of mine were um, started with a couple of mates of mine making a, a doing a play on campus. The only job left was producer, um, and so it was either I can produce the play or I can not see my mates for the whole semester because they'll be busy making this play. I didn't even know what it meant. I wasn't sure what my job was. I think I remember actually buying a book to explain to me what I was supposed to do to produce this play, yeah. <laughs> and I did it, and it was great fun. And I did a couple other plays after that. Then later, I um, uh, a graduate student I was working with uh, in the film program, he said, look, I don't have anyone to produce my, my movie. I usually produce my own. Would you want to produce it? Mm. I said, I don't, I, I don't know anything about producing movies. He said, well, look, I'll, I'll talk you through it. And you've done plays, so you know a bit. And, and we'll just do that. And so I, made, I produced my, my first job on a film was producing a short film. And I was really lucky because we... Um, you know, we won South by Southwest, we played at uh, Sundance, we got bought by HBO, the, the film, uh, we, it won an uh, Academy Award, it did, it did really, really well. And so you, you, can't, you can't ever get out of that grip, basically. You know, it's, yeah, it, yeah, yeah. It, I, was, I, was, I was stuck in film because I had this amazing experience and, and you know, it, it can be that wonderful and amazing. And I just, you know, you're always trying to, to sort of... I've been listening to lots of conversations about what is a producer and how that... The, the, <laughs> the, 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 name, the name on a film credit has been abused, disabused and mm. whatever. But what, in your mind, is the producer... <laughs> when, when somebody's got the producer credit from your position, when you've got it, what do you think that entails as a response? That does. This is, this is a conversation I have with my parents at Christmas dinner every year. Um, but it's... Um, I'm I'm a creative producer, and I'm I would also definitely I'm a low budget producer. So the jobs those two specifications I think differentiated a mm. bit. Um, I am on board. I either find the script or I'm brought the script, and I'm either brought the director or find the director. So from the very very beginning, from the conception of the project, mm. I'm usually there. Um, and if I'm not there, I'm there from, from very shortly after that point. Yeah. Um, I develop the script with the writer, writer director, lots of, I, I definitely want to have an opinion at that stage and I don't want to change their vision, but it's, I definitely want my input involved. Okay. And then, um, yeah, kind of, kind of 
getting the film made from there, really, raising the money. Um, I've been the location scout and manager and the casting director on a number of films. We had a very talented casting director on Borderlands, Bryony Barnett. Um, but that was the first time I'd gotten mm. to work with a casting director. Otherwise, it's always been me ringing up agents and booking okay. booking casting so sessions. So in a low-budget production, there, there, there becomes like different levels where if you get to a certain level of budget, that means you're going to get more help in terms of production. And the lower down you go in that levels of low production, the more roles you have to fulfill. Absolutely. My, my hat, hat rack overfloweth. Okay. It's sort of, okay. <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, and then, you know, I... I I AD a lot as well, um, so oh, as in like I get still, to the sets. Really? Yeah, it's sort of, it's it's a lot of work. It's sort of I, you know I don't see my friends a lot now. Um, but a- so, AD, you exactly you'll see exactly how the money's being spent then once the film. Exactly. Oh my god. Chop chop chop. Exactly. It's it's sort of it's um it's if 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 I've not said it was okay, it doesn't happen sort of a lot of times. But um, but it's it's a lot of work, and I think. But what it boils down to is is you have to have a degree of trust between you and the director that you trust that each other are doing what's best mm. for the project. And so, you know, I'm bringing the director all of the tools they need to make the film, and then I trust them to use them appropriately. Uh, okay. Um, so, so yeah, there's, there was a, a, a metaphor about um, wedding planners and producers where, you know, you've got to... The couple comes to you with the event... But then you've got to find the church, get the cake, book the band, send out the invites, make sure there's enough seating, do the whole thing. And if you can't find someone to bake the cake or the cake gets screwed up last minute, you better sure as hell be able to bake. Yeah. So it's, it's that sort of... <laughs> Good analogy. <laughs> um, you're, you're responsible for making sure it happens, however that is, whether it's delegating or doing it yourself. So. And is I mean, we were talking earlier before we started the, the podcast, is, is horror your genre or is just horror circumstantial in terms of... What what film you've been making? Um, I'd say column A, column B, really. Um, I have always enjoyed horror films. Um, I started off doing dramas, mm. uh, very very sort of kitchen sinky family dramas, and then when I moved to the UK, my husband's a special effects artist, so uh, doing physical effects, and so a lot of the filmmakers he knew were horror filmmakers because that's what call you know that's where his work was called for mm. so that was the group of collaborators i met and every feature i've done has been a horror film mm. um i really enjoy them i you know that doesn't mean that i wouldn't do a drama or i wouldn't do a comedy or i wouldn't mm. do something else but really horror affords you the ability to make any genre of film with the backdrop of horror, because really a horror should be a subgenre, or you know, it should it should have that other side comedy, to right? it. Yeah. Um, so you know, you, you you get horror comedies or horror dramas or horror thrillers. So I love horror. I will absolutely be making more horror films. If someone brought a straight drama or comedy to me, I wouldn't necessarily say no. But oh. I do like where I'm at. So. <laughs> and you're are you you're in the mainstream, aren't you? For no, we're a discovery screen actually, okay. and it was it was um, I'm 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 not sure if I'm able to say it. It was it was a discussion we had with Frightfest about it. But I love, especially with smaller films, I love exposing to smaller audiences. And like our film that played last year, Devil's Business, was mm. in the discovery screen, and that did fantastically. And we we got some really positive responses. But I think it's um, when playing in that smaller screen, everyone who's there wants to be there. Yeah. And I think for a smaller film, it's a much better um, 
introduction to the world to be to be seen by people who want to and there's see already, it. There's repeat, there's, I know there's a repeat screen I've already scheduled, isn't it? It is, it is. It's, play, it's playing first 9pm Saturday night and then again Monday morning, I believe at around 10. And 9pm Saturday night is a good slot. I We're very excited. Time. We're very excited about that. And it's, it's um, you know, it's it's not being funny, but it's also nice because you, you go see your film and you got the drinks with mates. And it's, <laughs> it's just it's a nice way to have it go. You can plan, you can plan your day around. Exactly. <laughs> um... So, as a little as a little bit of um, sort of fun from talking about your film and stuff, for the Britflix listener, would you be able to recommend a British horror film from your as you as a fan? Oh wow! And not, nothing to not not don't think in terms of contemporary. Just from your point of view, what would be a? I mean, well, Rosemary's Baby is is my favourite film, which I kind of consider an international horror film, mm. but even despite its its roots. But um, oh man, um. The, you know what, I watched something recently that I'd never seen before, and I, I think it's a classic film, a classic British film that a lot of people see. Um, the Quartermass Experiment? Is that yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Quartermass Experiment. And then as a companion piece and tying it back into the Borderlands, the the um, Stone Tape Files, I think what it's called. That one? Um, it's, it's about um, a scientific group. Uh, like a like a, a company going into an old sort of I can't remember if it's a castle or a, or a, just an old building in England and um, there's there's ghosts in the walls and the, the oh, house itself has imprinted them and that sort of without saying too much that sort of folds back in the oh, borderlands okay. there's some references okay. there but yeah definitely quartermass experiment I think if if people haven't seen it they definitely okay. should and is that is that before we before we finish is there anything that you can talk about which is that's coming in the pipeline or you're about to start on, well we've got um I've also just finished the forgotten which is yeah. a, another British horror film about a um a young boy who uh, his family's been displaced and he moves into a empty council flat with his dad yeah. And he begins to hear noises in the boarded up flat next door. Exactly. So it's a nice little ghost yeah, story yeah. on a council estate. Um, and then... Little Deaths is out on the 12th of August on DVD. Little Deaths is out on the 12th of August, have. finally, in the UK. And we're yes, very yes, excited yes. about that. Um, uh, and then I've got, coming up soon, we've got two films. One is Whitaker, which is a modern retelling of Frankenstein. Um, and uh, that's, that's a fantastic one. It's a great sci-fi film. And then we've got a project with Sean Hogan um, called No Man's Land, okay. which is a World War One trench warfare film, but there's something sinister in the mist, and it's not the Bosch. <laughs> so I'll just, those are those are lots of fun coming up. Lots of lots of being in caves and trenches this year, unfortunately, which I'm maybe not best for my health, but certainly best for the films. So. Well, no doubt, I'm, we'll see you around at Frankfest. Absolutely. Indeed. Well, look. That was great. Thank you very much for your time, Jen. Fantastic. Thank you for having me. And I shall see you at the Empire Leicester Square. See you then. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. 
From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.